0: Hey, it's Gabby and guess what? The Corporate Quitter Club is now officially live. It's live Monday, October 4th. Get in while you can. (laughs) Let me tell you, I'm beyond freaking excited about this because when I started, I was completely overwhelmed. I didn't know what to do. I felt like I was spending money left and right for honestly crap. So I decided to take the headache and guesswork out of it for you. And I'm giving you the perfect launch pad to start that damn business once and for all see the vision, see the possibility of leaving the nine to five, and connect with some pretty awesome like-minded people in the process. So get in while you can because this shit is going to fill up fast, literally. So run, don't walk. If you're interested in joining or learning more, you can visit corporatequitterclub.com or email us at corporatequitter at gmail.com. See you there. You're listening to the Corporate Quitter Podcast where it's all about exploring possibilities for making an honest living outside of the traditional nine to five. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Corporate Quitter. I'm your host, Gabby Ainello, and today's guest I'm very excited about. His name is Tarek Fancy. He used to be the chief investment officer for sustainable investing at BlackRock, a financial services firm with over $9 trillion in investments. After trying to make Wall Street more green from the inside, he realized there was no real social impact happening, and he is now ready to blow the whistle about greenwashing. Additionally, he founded Rumi, an ed tech nonprofit startup with the intention of closing the learning gap by providing open and free library of micro learning courses that cover the essential life and career skills necessary to succeed. So I am so thrilled that you're on just because we linked up like I was at Brookfield, like I was doing the adulting manual. So I feel like we have a lot in common and you can provide so much knowledge to the listeners. So thank you.
1: Thanks for having me. I'm really, really great to be here
0: with you. Yeah. So can you get into your story a bit? Obviously, you're a part of BlackRock, and now you're being a bit of a whistleblower. I saw that article you were in. So can you kind of give us you know, your full experience of like what you went to school for, what happened in your career, and kind of how Rumi started?
1: Yeah, definitely. I mean, my, my career is sort of a bit of an unusual one, but I think a lot of people these days understand that you move around from one thing to another. And so I studied international developments and had a real interest in doing social type of work. But I missed out on a big scholarship at the end of undergrad, and I didn't know what to do with my life. And then suddenly, these investment banks came to campus. And long story short, I spent a long career in the finance space, versus an investment banker working on in the tech sector actually for tech IPOs. And then afterwards, uh, doing investing in a whole host of special situations and other other type of sort of hairy situations, the more the trickier ones in finance. And invested, then I worked on building a bunch of strategies. And then actually, eight years ago in 2013, I left to create Rumi. Which is a five hundred one c three or like purely a nonprofit, the goal of which is to make learning easy, fun, and accessible to everyone. Right to use digital learning as an opportunity to level the playing field for educational inequalities. And then uh, I ended up back in finance in twenty eighteen. I, I started as BlackRock's chief investment officer for sustainable investing, and that was interestingly kind of meant to be a merger of the two things I had done previously in my career as a financial investor, banker, pure on finance person doing you know financial profit, and then I happened to, for personal reasons, left and done a nonprofit with a purely social bottom line. And Romy had done well and grown. And so myself in this unique position of having understood both bottom lines, social and financial, and having built them from the ground up. And then BlackRock, which is, uh, as you mentioned, the largest asset manager in the world, and in fact, the largest in history, with $9 trillion approached me and, you know, with the idea of saying, why don't you become our first chief investment officer for sustainable investing? Sustainable investing is kind of like impact investing, responsible investing, like any kind of investing that produces a good market return, like it's profitable and it's doing good at the same time. That's sort of the premise behind it.
0: Yeah, it's funny that you also were... I wasn't in sustainable investing per se, but I was always involved with people who were in the sustainable or ESG space. And it was really funny because, right, they always run numbers, they're crunching, you know, they have to submit them to X board to make sure we're operating, you know, according to rules and X, whatever it is. And it always seemed like it was, I don't know, it was weird. Like, especially like, I think BlackRock too, you guys were in the real estate sector, or at least one of your divisions. And so for us, we're always knocking down trees and like doing all these developments we're in these third world countries. And it was kind of like, wait a second, like we're tearing down rainforests to build pipelines, but that's sustainable. Like what the heck? I don't understand. Were you finding a lot of that too? And that's why this whole greenwashing thing came about. Like, what was the tipping point for you where you were like, no, no, we're not doing this anymore. I don't want to be involved.
1: Yeah. I mean, to a large extent, you're right. I mean, your hunch is accurate. I think a lot of people have the hunch when they look out there and they see all these companies saying, hey, we're doing great things for the world. And they have like a glossy marketing deck that's got like trees and it's green and all that stuff. People have this inherent skepticism about it. I think that's growing and I, I think they're right about it. And the difference with me is that I actually saw inside the middle of the machine was moving the pieces around and know exactly, you know, I can confirm exactly how it's happening, which is the hunch everyone has. The fact of the matter is that, you know, being green costs money, right? Like climate change is not a blessing. People act like, oh, climate change is great investment opportunity. I mean, yeah, there are areas where there's new stuff we need to build, right? There's just like COVID-19, right? There was an opportunity for Zoom and a few companies, but like overall, it was bad for people. It was a crisis we didn't want to happen. And I think that with climate change, it's very clear that it's going to cost money to fix it. Because it's cheaper to burn fossil fuels because we don't tax pollution, right? So until we do that, it's just cheaper and easier to use the existing system you have to burn coal and this and that. And so what I found in the system was that all the things that are important to fix, inequality is another one. Like it's going to cost people in power money. And I think that in some ways, not necessarily intentionally by people acting maliciously, but just through how the system itself operates, when you have all these different incentives and they come together to produce this complex economic system, no one has a true incentive to do the things that society needs done. They're saying, oh, we're going to be extra green. And I'm looking at the data and I'm like, but you're not, because you're obviously focused on profit, which is not an evil thing. It's actually legally and financially, their hands are tied. The players in the system, Have to go and try to get as many dollars as they can, right? You know, this is actually more important than sort of like the idea of do they want to or not. It's the fact that they're constrained. There's something called fiduciary duty, it's a legal obligation that if you're, you know, managing someone else's money or assets, you have to operate according to a set of principles, most importantly, of which is that generally you have to focus on maximizing dollar value, right? No one cares about values. Right. Society cares about values, but the system and the individual decision makers are constrained by focusing on dollar values. And the unfortunate reality is that many things that we need done in society that are good for society that are, you know, the things that like you know we need to fight climate change, they cost money. And so actually businesses are not doing what we need them to do on it. And what I realized inside the system was that we were effectively greenwashing it by creating a bunch of stories and anecdotes and marketing materials that were creating the impression to people that like the system had already fixed itself or was fixing itself now. And like, you know, pretty much it was all intended to preserve the status quo and to prevent government regulation on a set of areas and industries that desperately need regulation. And for which, you know, if that doesn't happen, it's massively robbing young people today because, you know, we're just kicking the can down on the road on these issues, right? And it's going to get a lot worse.
0: Yeah. Can you just, for the listeners, clarify what greenwashing is? Because I don't think everyone is 100% certain on what that actually entails.
1: Yeah. I mean, greenwashing, people define it differently. But generally, speaking it's you know any kind of marketing that is intended to create the impression that someone is doing something green or good for the environment and and people extend it now to even social things right so whether it's companies you know responding to black lives matter protests and so on by saying oh no no look at all the stuff we're doing over here you know generally speaking it's it's marketing efforts that are intended to create the impression that they're doing the right things on social issues again particularly the green ones but it's not actually happening. Kind of like whitewashing it. They're greenwashing it and trying to convince us they're doing all the stuff that we need them to be doing and they're not. And it's extremely dangerous, right? Because the clock is ticking on climate change and every single year you hear all these companies saying all the great things they're doing. And then every single year you look at the data and you're like, wait a second, emissions keep rising. And like, we seem to be digging ourselves into a bigger hole.
0: Do you think there's any solution that's going to arise out of this? Or do you think this is like a systematic issue where like we almost have to like start over? Because I know too, with like the whole, now that so many people work from home, there's also the issue of like, people don't want to go back to the office. Like we want to do things completely different. So I feel like between the sustainability issues and like the work, like there are so many issues that are happening right now from a foundational level that people are like, what the hell? Like what? I don't know what to do. What do we do?
1: Yeah. It's really, it's really daunting. Right. I think, I think that it's a really good question. I think there is a solution. It's one that's just not been on the radar for decades. And it's one that I think young people need to start to focus heavily on because it's almost being removed from their vocabulary. And that's the idea that we need government action. We need aggressive government action to solve the problem. And here's an analogy I'd use. I always analogize competitive markets to competitive sports. So I love I love sports. I'm a big soccer fan, but you could frankly substitute any sport you want in there. Let's, let's use basketball as an example. You know, if you're on a basketball court, it's a competitive game. A competitive sport, you have rules. Every sport has rules. The players are on the court and they have one goal. It's to score points. They have to go within the rules, right? They can't punch the defender in the face and go do a layup. They have to obviously, like, they can't foul people. There are rules they operate within. But within those rules, they are on that court to score points. And if they don't score points, they're going to get put on the bench. Competitive markets are the same way. Businesses, portfolio managers, and so on, they're engaged in a form of competition. And their competition is governed by also a single metric that they're targeting. In their case, it's not points, it's profits, right? And you're trying to maximize profits. That's wonderful in terms of an economic system that wants to find the most efficient ways to harness creativity, hard work, and so on, you know, to produce the best profits. The challenge becomes when people forget that referees exist. Like, think of it this way. Every competitive sport, basketball is going to have rules. Is referees hanging out, right? With competitive markets, there's this fantasy that's been sold to people over decades that there's a free market, and they say, oh, well, you can't have government changing the rules. That would be an intervention on the free market. It's complete nonsense. There is no such thing as a free market. Every, Every single economy and every single market has rules, right? Whether it's property taxes, whether it's fines on pollution, whether it's intellectual property rights. All of us, if we register a business and we start to operate, we have regulations we have to adhere to. These are good regulations, right? There's a reason why I can't go and invent a baby seat and, you know, out of a few spare materials and sell in the store because it's probably not safe, right? We don't want babies getting hurt or I can't sell random, you know, food with lead on the supermarket shelves, right? These regulations are what keep us safe. And the unfortunate reality is that people have been convinced since the 80s, it's been a significant push that came out of the reagan era and when margaret thatcher was in charge in the uk these set of market ideas called, called neoliberalism and they basically just say oh free markets will solve all problems and today that's being used to preserve the status quo there is no free market right it's just really being used to prevent change by actors who benefit from this current system and they don't want to see a change so they said no, no, don't intervene in this free market which is kind of like saying we have a basketball game that's gone all right right like as players are punching each other in the face no one's following the rules you know, you can't rely on good sportsmanship at that point. You need the damn referees, well freeze. And the last thing business wants is taxes and regulation. And so they're engaged in this massive thing where they've got this thing called stakeholder capitalism and just a whole set of ideas that I saw from the inside of the machine, you know, looking at this $9 trillion across all sectors. I mean, it was literally from real estate to everything in between. It's like a microcosm of capitalism. And I could clearly see that the system will not change unless governments actually come in and regulate it, right? Like, if you don't want people emitting a lot of carbon, for God's sake, we need to put a carbon tax. Like, a guy won the Nobel Prize in Economics years ago for that. He's been arguing it since the 20th century. The last thing business wants is that. And so they're out there greenwashing and basically saying, don't worry, why would you, you know, we'll do the right thing all on our own.
0: We'll put corn utensils in the pantry, but we're still going to pump out all this crap into the air. It's like- That's
1: exactly it, right? Oh my God. It's like the players on that basketball court, imagine they're playing really dirty for decades and then everyone's like, oh, this needs to stop. And then suddenly they're like, wait a second, the answer is good sportsmanship. And we're like, no, that's not the answer at all. It's not been the answer for the last few decades. Last thing they want is government regulation. And, and the challenge is that there's a lot of money in politics that prevents closing loopholes that powerful that benefit powerful parties.
0: So with all that being said, like, how did Rumi kind of fall into this? Because I know they're somehow, they're like slightly connected, but obviously, maybe it's not 100% sustainable related, but like, how did the idea of maybe creating systematic change kind of tie in with Rumi?
1: Well, Rumi is interesting because it was sort of for me, so I started Rumi in 2013 before I went to BlackRock. It was sort of me first deciding that I wanted to focus on social impact before I then gave a shot at trying to merge the two and realized that like there was no social impact in what Wall Street was doing. But the original thing was actually, I'd been working in finance and I just, I wondered if it was what I really cared about and wanted to do long-term. And I clearly came to the decision that it was not. Around the same time, I had a really, really close friend with whom I did an MBA. Close friend, they became my roommate in the program. And he and I both bonded because we were both working in finance. We both, I don't think we either, like we all dreamed of being you know bankers, right? It was just kind of like we went to, Pretty good schools. And then at the other end of it, like they hoover you up if you're not sure what to do next. And so we kind of kept saying we want to do social good. And then, like, it never happened. And then a few years after we graduated, he uh, was diagnosed with stage four cancer. And uh, it's stage four melanoma, which is particularly uh, difficult. So it's less of a matter of chances and more of a matter of time. So his name was Michiel. He was Dutch. He changed in that period of time. Stage four cancer, you know, he knew the writing was on the wall. You know, we were saying, I'll do something good someday. And then for him, it was now or never because he knew that the writing was there. So he actually went to Kenya and founded an organization around education for underprivileged kids. My parents were actually born and raised in Kenya and my grandparents for generations. And so, you know, it was just amazing to me to see this blonde-haired, blue-eyed Dutch guy. You know, he knows his days are numbered. And this is what he wants to do. This is what brings him meaning. And seeing him go through that experience and having been like so close to him, then when he passed, and sadly he did pass after fighting stage four cancer fears, that pushed me off the diving board to do Rumi. And Rumi was all about like, how can we massively change education by using technology to improve access and make it fun and make it easy, especially for the people who are the least served, right? So the weird thing is that there's a lot of great new learning tools, right? Everyone talks about education technology and this, that, and there's a lot of free things and Khan Academy, but a lot of the early data shows that it's actually not reducing educational inequality. It's increasing it. Crazy thing. You think, well, how does it increase it? Well, it's not that the poor kids are losing anything. They're just not getting any of the gains. So they're staying where they were. And then uh, who has access to fancy new devices, fast internet connections, schools that have all that built into it? It's probably a kid in Palo Alto, right? And it's less likely to be a kid in a rough school in New York, and so that's really where we saw the opportunity. We said, wait a second, it's the kids in parts of Detroit or Newark or Baltimore. I mean, any North American city. There's going to be increasingly inequality, and lots and lots of young people who have extraordinary potential to offer, and they're not going to get a chance to realize that potential, not because you know of any fault of their own, right? It's just where they were born and raised, and so that was the idea behind Rumi. How do we start to use technology to truly democratize access to learning. And uh, we actually started doing stuff in the first early years in emerging markets because, you know, you started where people had nothing and you had something, we made it, you know, here's a device it works offline. Here's a full curriculum of content. And we found that we could reduce the costs of traditional learning that they were trying to build by like a hundred times by just switching from books to bytes is what I call it. Right. Cause it's so much cheaper. To disseminate and spread digital information if you have all the right infrastructure and then the content is free. And that led to uh, kind of where we are now, where we've evolved into microlearning and it's done really well in the pandemic. And we think it's the next big thing that, you know, is all open and free and that we want people to know more about and, and be able to improve their lives with.
0: That's great. And also I would say that as someone who binged TikTok during the pandemic, It's pretty cool that you can, I mean, it's for entertainment, let's be honest, but like the same idea of they have people who will teach you things about, like I learned about housing, like the markets, finance, and like I came from a a financial company and yet there were still things that I didn't know these tips, tricks, tricks. Again, stuff I wasn't taught in school that could have made a huge difference had I known it 10 years ago. So, is that kind of where the micro learning stemmed from? Like, how did you go from the idea, the conception, to now having like this micro learning platform? Like, I saw that you had on there too, you have the resume, the quick resume, TikTok resume, which is amazing.
1: Yeah, that one's a cool one. It, you know, it's a few things that led us in that direction. The first one you touched on and is really important it's the idea that we all need to keep learning. The world's changing around us a lot faster than it would have been, you know, in our grandparents' era. Not to say they weren't doing important things, they just didn't have information spreading as fast and things changing as quickly. And that makes it incumbent on all of us to kind of stay a bit sharp on our skills, right? Because you could leave school and you'll say, I had studied finance and economics, but then like a few years later, people are using cryptocurrencies. You think, well, what does this mean for this or that? Or so you, you kind of got to stay on the cutting edge. That's number one. It's just a little bit of a lifelong learning thing. And then the second thing we found was that doing it in microlearning was more effective for a couple of reasons. Number one, there's recent research showing that if you learn in short snippets of time, right? Like a five minute, like building blocks, right? That are just discrete individual blocks, five minutes here, five minutes there. It actually has higher learning retention. So the average person, it's an increase of 22%. You just tend to retain it more for a variety of, of cognitive sort of reasons. But the second and more important thing is that if you make it five minute snippets, you just make it easy for people to use whenever they have five minutes. And what we started to realize was that the only people in that segment for like five minutes here and there on your mobile phone was social media. Social media had figured out how to drive engagement. They said, listen, like here's a great stat. The average time someone spends on Instagram is six minutes. The average social media usage per day is like over two and a half hours. That was by the way, before the pandemic. So probably my time. <laughs> now
0: it's probably doubled. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy.
1: And by the way, the often nuts thing is people think, oh, maybe it's less outside of North America or whatever, in poorer countries. The Philippines is the highest. It's three hours and 53 minutes on social media. Today. And so the crazy thing is you might think, well, who the heck sits and like, you know, picked up their phone and says, I spend, I'm going to spend the next four hours on Facebook or whatever. Obviously, no one, but that's not how they're getting you. They're getting you because they're hacking out these short sessions, right? The six minutes, six minutes, eight minutes, because, you know, you're waiting for the bus, you're on the bus, you're on transit, someone's in the bathroom, this or whatever. And we all kind of now instinctively grab our phones. And I find myself doing it. I actually like navigate to the folder with social media and I click on it. And I'm not even thinking, right? It's like the reason we do it is because they've hacked our attention, right? I mean, that's the whole idea behind that documentary last year, The Social Dilemma on Netflix that
0: got a lot of- Oh, that was like mind, like after a Mind-blowing, like, right? Oh my right? God, like what? I mean, it's cool to see the science behind it, but it's also terrifying because you're like, I've been sucked in just like everyone else.
1: I know, and so have I, like I'm complaining and it's not like I'm not on Instagram or whatever <laughs> myself, right? So it's like, you know, but we know that like they've figured out how to hack our attention span and get us on there for, you know, a dopamine rush because you get a dopamine rush when you refresh it. The issue as that documentary pointed out is that, you know, you do that a lot, adds up massively per day. And over months and months and months, it's massively detrimental to your mental health. It's increasing suicide rates. It's increasing, destroying people's confidence. And so well, why microlearning is so important is that besides being in a more effective way to learn, we're also finding that it's replacing social media time. And, you know, the crazy, so we were surveying like teens in Detroit and stuff and nearly 90% said that it was competing with their social media time. So the cool thing is, number one, it doesn't compete with like Coursera or Khan Academy because like you can't really do that for five minutes on your phone, right? That's just not the same, you know, so it really what was competing with obviously the Instagram session or the whatever, the five minute, you know, hit on social media. But the second thing that's really cool is that the reason I think it's starting to compete well is that you actually get a dopamine rush, right? You get that feel good, you know, feeling also, if you learn a concept or if you build a skill, but the key is it can't be like you just jump into a longer lesson. Like I opened the textbook to page 12 and then I wrote, I read the page, you know, 15 in five minutes. And then it's like, okay, I'm done. You have to kind of start and finish and then learn a skill and do a couple of quizzes, whatever. And that's how we've built it is that you basically then you get effectively get a dopamine rush, but you're doing something positive for yourself and for your mental health. And that's, I think the biggest thing about us. We're a nonprofit, right? We're not Every education player, even the for-profit ones, they're effectively going to sell your data. They're going to use your data to sell you another course because that's how they get revenue, or they're going to use it to sell ads if you're social media, but like ultimately they've got that's their profit model. We're trying to use the exact same approach around driving greater and greater engagement, but we're not taking anything and selling it, but we're using everything because we're a nonprofit to just improve you, to help you improve yourself, to you know, make it easy for people to build themselves up. And we think that like the engagement mechanics of how social media works, you can't escape them, right? I don't think that's not something actually I think the government can regulate easily. And so providing people with healthy alternatives where they can get a dopamine rush and build themselves over months of time, it's almost like a mental health diet that we're seeing that people, you know, they really see the benefits if they give it a shot.
0: Yeah, plus also like, I don't know for a lot of listeners, well, for me personally, like sometimes I like specifically go to these social platforms because I'm looking for knowledge. It's not because like I want to see the dog or like the brunch shot. Like I actually want to learn something for my business to then implement. So at this point, like I've unfollowed probably about 500 people because I explicitly just want to see basically accounts who are giving me knowledge. But if you already have a platform like that, that is free of ads, like that's another thing. I'm so sick of ads. I don't want to be sold anything anymore. I just want to kind of get the information and that like, that's it. Versus again, like you would read a book or like do a two hour course. Like, not only do I not have time for that, but my attention span is like, I'm I'm going to the bathroom. I'm hitting the subway. I love the fact that I could brush my teeth, watch a two minute video, and then hit the road feeling accomplished. You know what I mean? So I think you're really you're onto something.
1: Yeah, totally it fits into your day exactly the way I want it to fit in. And so that's you know the crazy thing is people wonder how we're we're actually doing it because well so how do you compete with them and like your nonprofit. We compete with them in the same way that like Wikipedia competed with Britannica and Encarta, which is to say, yes, they were a nonprofit, but they were able to leverage a movement of people around the world who believed in democratizing access to education. Same with us is that all the courses, the micro courses on the platform, which we call Bytes, they're all created through a process where we have a growing volunteer community. People who are experts in different areas. Some of them, there's a famous astronaut, Chris Hatfield, just wrote one. Like there's more and more people who have skills to give. It's almost like, you know if you're the celebrity, you could be a master, an open and free masterclass. Most of the people are just like you and I, right? We know certain areas and we want to contribute. And they join the community and they are able to distill their insights into these micro learning experiences. And that's really what allows us to be effective, right? Because then we don't have to like sell ads and sell you know all this stuff basically to fund the model, because most of the model is driven by you know the passion of a movement of people who believe in sharing their skills in the most pedagogically effective way, which turns out to be micro learning to the people who are, to really anyone, right? Who, who wants to to better themselves.
0: It's really awesome too, that you were able to leverage volunteers because, you know, funding, if you were to pay people would probably be very expensive and also like trying to source specific people like these high level executives, CEOs, celebrities, like it can not only get really hard to get them to maybe do the thing and link up calendars, but again, like pay cross promotion, like. All that encompasses with having people who are like not the average person. So it's cool that you have so many different things going. But yes, like the astronaut, that's super cool too. Who He's not such an average person, but he also isn't like a Kardashian. You know, it's still really cool to learn from an expert, like another person you can look up to who isn't on TV or something.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. And there's so many people like that who would be happy to share insights if there's a platform. And so that's why, you know, now that we have it, we want to spread the word and get more people involved because there's so much they can do to help. You know, now it just hit, you know, so many kids who are using the platform and so many people of all ages, right? But who are thirsty for, for knowledge and healthy alternative to social media addiction.
0: Nice. So other than having maybe the well you would have had the financial challenges but maybe not now what are some of of the other challenges you face as a result of starting this up and also like i think it was such a huge transition from you to go from a financial background and have like that steady job to now running the show yourself with a nonprofit.
1: yeah it's definitely it's a tricky and risky one it's one of those things where you know it doesn't really work unless you're truly passionate about it, because otherwise it's kind of irrational from a financial or this or that perspective. But, you know, it's something that like, we, the team, basically like think is game-changing and all the results are really good. And so really our biggest challenge now is, is just spreading awareness, right? I mean, Wikipedia is super useful to people, but in the very earliest days, no one knew it was there, right? So the more people found out about it, the more that they could start to use it and it started to like, you know, democratize access. And so we're kind of in that same period now where it's starting to massively accelerate. And We just want more and more people to know about it because that, you know, our only bottom line is helping people build themselves, right? Like we're, again, we're a nonprofit, so it's our bottom line is social impact. And the more people that join the movement and really take part in what we think is going to be really the, the Wikipedia of free micro learning, that's all quick, it's all mobile phone based, it's all built for the modern learner. That's the kind of thing where we want, like as many people as can spread the word and come and use it. It's better for everyone.
0: Do you find that you're happier now that you're doing this versus being in finance?
1: I think so. I mean, I think, you know, it's not necessarily finance or any particular career. I think it's often what you're doing in that. And, you know, for me, I didn't love what I was doing in finance. I, I wanted to do something with social impact. It was almost worse when I went back to doing sustainable investing because, I quickly realized that there wasn't really much there. It was actually greenwashing. And then it worried me. And the reason I went public and started writing op-eds and sparking a very large debate in the finance community was because it started to worry that it's even worse than harmless. It was actively harmful because it creates this placebo effect where everyone says, oh, look, like, you know, imagine you can't really tell if a player is playing sportsman-like or not, or if they're playing dirty or not. And they keep telling you and trying to convince you with billions of dollars in marketing doing the right thing. And you don't know that they're not. Right. You would then delay calling in the referees to enforce better rules. Right. Because you don't know. And right now, a lot of what business is doing is actively delaying regulation. It's misleading young people into believing that, like, the free market will solve all their problems. And it's ludicrous because in the last year, we just saw the react. Like, amazing thing about COVID-19, it was a systemic threat where science told us that we needed to flatten the curve. It was infections curve. And so the government got involved and they closed schools and bars and they made International travel, they restricted it, they made mass mandatory. That was all really important. Otherwise, you know, so many more people would have millions of people would have died. But climate change is not that different, right? It's a systemic threat where scientists are telling us we need to flatten the curve, right? It's the greenhouse gas emissions curve. And yet today's crop of business leaders are telling us that, no, 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 for that one, we can just leave the free market to solve it. We don't need the government to take drastic action. The reason they're able to get away with that is because the incubation period for COVID-19 is a few weeks, right? You, You know, figure out pretty quickly if you get it or not. The incubation period for climate change, it's so slow moving, it takes decades. And so we're now feeling some of the effects of it from stuff we've done decades earlier. And my concern is that if business leaders keep doing that, it's actually intergenerational robbery. Like it's actually like ripping off younger people who don't benefit as much from the current economic system, but are going to be most on the hook for the consequences of continued inaction.
0: Yeah. And I think it's also really hard because like we talked about before, there's not necessarily a set solution as to how to fix these things, because it seems like every single system in this world needs to be like completely wiped out and start over.
1: Yeah. And that's the challenge. I mean, one thing I would say, a lot of folks will say, therefore, capitalism doesn't work. I wouldn't go that far. I think capitalism does work. The problem is that the current leaders are giving us a rigged version of it. Capitalism has rules, and those rules need to be updated, like basketball's rules, and they would need to be updated every so often. And we haven't updated them. And it's because the system is currently, you know, the people who benefit from the status quo don't want to change it. I'm a capitalist. I would tell you, I'm very worried that capitalism itself is at risk Because if people see, frankly, a shit version of it, right, they're going to conclude that it doesn't work at all, even though in the 1950s and 1960s and 1970s, in the U.S., you had better outcomes from capitalism, right? Less inequality, more inclusive economy. Even the environmental protection was better. Crazily enough, Richard Nixon, of all people, founded the uh, EPA in 1970, right? So it's all possible, but the government needs to be given the political room to do their job. And I think this administration in the U.S. actually would if business leaders would stop bullshitting people with the fact that they can solve everyone's problems. I think the government would actually do what policy experts have been telling us and, and start fixing the system.
0: Yeah. So like, I know, obviously you're saying that you don't maybe agree with what's going on, but like, so what's your opinion about systems in general?
1: You know, it's interesting. I think the most important way of looking at systems is to think about the incentives of the players. There's a lot of people talking about systems change and then I'll read through it and there'll be a bunch of words and they'll talk about attitudes and cultures. That's all great. I'm an old school person. I think about concrete rules, right? Like, it's kind of like saying good sportsmanship and ethos on the basketball court. Yes, yeah, it's nice. But like, also someone needs to like blow the whistle, right? And proper aggressive rules. And that's where I feel like we've failed because, you know, I'm a fan of the show, The Wire, which I don't know, Some maybe some of the listeners have heard of, It was a show from 15 years ago. They talk about different systems and how they storytell how if you have a system with incentives that are not built correctly, you get weirdly perverse outcomes, And it reminds me of like the last international trip I did before COVID hit was to West Africa, which was joining friends on a trip for the year of the return, which was something to Ghana, where the Ghanaian president invited people to go back, specifically African-Americans, to go back and see their ancestry in West Africa, because it was the end of 2019 and it was the 400 year anniversary of the first slave ship crossing from the Cape coast of Ghana to Jamestown, Virginia. And so I went and I did all these cultural events. And I have to say, it was a very interesting framing to go and and do that trip. It was obviously emotional and interesting. And to do it, you know, at the beginning of the year where then the George Floyd thing happened and and all the protests. And the one thing that fascinated me me was that, you know, one night and the first night I get pulled over by some cops. They're, you know, they're saying they're trying to like get a bribe out of us, right? They're saying, oh, you're doing this wrong or that wrong. In the end, I, I just found this cop like funny. And we just started joking around. We started talking. And then we kind of became friends. And then it was clear that like, it was kind of an act, like he was trying to act aggressive, whatever. And he was like, listen, like at the end of the day, they don't get paid that much. And the system is built in a way that they saw an opportunity to take advantage of all these rich foreigners coming in. And they realized like, listen, like I can basically do this or that or whatever. And they'll probably pay me money to go away. And I thought to myself, like, you could tell that guy that that's wrong. That's corruption is bad. That's true. But at the other hand, like, I looked at that guy and I thought, if I were in his shoes, I would probably do the same thing. If I were born and raised there and someone, you know, this is the issue, right? My parents probably Kenya, like, corruption happens because the system is at fault. And the system has incentives that are structured in a way that it leaves someone like that. He gets paid so little that you give them the temptation to, like, they've got big guns to go and intimidate a foreigner for a few hundred bucks. They might do it. They're not doing it to go buy a yacht, right? He's doing it so he can like feed his family. I look at the economic system the same way, right? Every single company out there is going to tell us all these wonderful stories about how they're going net zero. I hope that they do, but on mass, at a systemic level, there's no way you can get that done unless you have a carbon tax and a whole bunch of other aggressive, you know, vehicle emissions limits, energy efficiency standards. Those have to be set by government. They have to be enshrined by law. And if you do that, you change the incentives of the players so they do what we want them to. If we don't, they're going to do the wrong thing, just like this cop did who was asking for a bribe. And it's not because any of them are evil. It's just because, you know, that's the game, right? If You set the game up in a way that people score points and do what they need to do through things that we think are bad. We're at fault when if we don't get the consequences we want.
0: Yeah. It's also hard to get out of that system once you've grown up with it, especially like with us being... When you're young, you're already conditioned to think, okay, this is how the world works and this is how things happen. And you want to like, in the case of a cop, right? You don't want to get pulled over. And if you want, you got to try to be nice to them so that they don't charge you for the ticket or whatever it is. And like, keep going. I mean, it's America versus Kenya, a very different situation. But when you grow up with that and then you try to change it, it's almost like, it feels like it's unnatural. It's, I don't even know where I would even start. It's so overwhelming too.
1: Yeah, it's it's so difficult, right? Because you're forced to live within that system on a daily basis at the same time that you're trying to change it for everyone's sake. Because you know, you're absolutely right. Like You could talk about police reform, but that's not going to stop the fact that when you're driving home, you, you could get pulled over by a police person and you're subject to the existing system and rules. And so that is the difficult part of like, how do you live within that system, but then also understand its shortcomings and develop both the energy and the the passion and the drive to try to change it at the same time, right? And to try to build something a bit better. And that's kind of where we're at right now, right? We're at a crossroads for a bunch of important social issues and we need systemic change. And, you know, my argument would be that really just only comes through government. Yes, political system is broken, but like we need to fix it. And I, I don't want to keep hearing from people, oh, well, the Republicans, you know, this, that, whatever, they're blocking this, that. And not because I'm par- partisan one way or another anyway, I'm Canadian, but it's just because I look at it, I think to myself, well, yes, but Today, I would turn my attention to business leaders and say, wait a second, when it comes to systemic problem, we need government action. And you guys know that. You saw that in COVID-19. You all agreed with it. Well, we need that for climate change. You know, I would want them to stop marketing on things they can't do. Because currently, they are set up their incentives such that it's actually cheaper and easier to market yourself as green rather than actually doing sustainability stuff. Because that takes 10 or 20 years to flow through and... Most CEOs are only incentivized for the next few years. So they'd rather just market, you know, as much as they can to keep the government and the public at bay and then you know protect the profit model that they make bank on in, in you know in the next few years. It's very short-term oriented.
0: Yeah. Well, also, I mean, I'm sure they have some certain metrics that they have to abide by, not even from a sustainable perspective, but right, you need to get X amount of profits or sign on X amount of people or whatever it is, build out a team. And so if you're focusing on that, which is so hard to begin with, and then you're also given this like seemingly a task that cannot be like completed fully like 20 years who's going to be in a company for 20 years in this sort of market like that was something that like my grandmother her generation did not even like my parents generation not even and definitely not my generation so we definitely have a long way to go, but I feel like people are getting really vocal and things are changing so rapidly. Like they say that, what is it? Technology evolves, like what is it? Compounding. So if you you know speed up two years, next year, it's it's four years. Then it just like keeps keeps doubling. So I feel like hopefully with everything, it's progressing in a way that will hopefully save the planet and you know everyone's sanity in the process.
1: I, I think you're right. I think that we haven't done enough clearly as of 2021, but you do see the tea leaves are changing and people are starting to get very motivated. And they're starting to better understand how to change systems so that we can translate a lot of energy and slogans and passion into concrete change. And I think that we'll hopefully find that that will happen very, very quickly. And uh, there's an old saying, God, was it Gorbachev? I can't, it was one of the Russian leaders who said like something along the lines of sometimes history can happen, decades worth of history can happen in a year or two, because you know, you have these tipping points and all the pieces aligned and then suddenly political revolution or this or that happens and you see massive change when things steam over and i think maybe in the early years of this decade we could hopefully we'll see that kind of change to put us on a better trajectory for the future.
0: Yeah, hope so too. <laughs> so this has been really really great. I think we covered a myriad of topics that have been really helpful and eye opening, but one thing i like to do when i wrap up every single episode is i like to ask my guests if you could give advice to your younger self what would that be?
1: Honestly, if i could give an advice to my younger self, i would probably say to maybe just even be a bit more bold and take risks even earlier than I did in this lifetime. I think I basically did a stable sort of easy finance stuff until my early thirties. And then that's when I started thinking about switching and doing roomy and everything else. And it's sometimes a bit easier to do it when you're younger, right? Because, you know, you have less obligations, right? You're not likely to have kids or anything else to take care of. And so I would almost encourage younger people not to just take risks You know, for the sake of it, obviously you want to take smart risks and all, but to the extent that you have passion, you want to try something. Sometimes it's a bit easier to do it earlier. And I I wish I'd even tried it a bit earlier because I had tons of energy, I had a lot of passion. It was the best time to learn. But you know, it takes a bit of boldness and courage. And I wasn't able to break out of the train tracks of living someone else's dream. You know, and growing the whole finance thing until, frankly, my thirties when this very close friend passed away, and then that kind of pushed me off the edge of the diving board, but not everyone will have that happen the same way. And I would encourage them to to go for it earlier. That's what I would have told myself anyway.
0: I mean, I'm I'm sorry that that's kind of what happened and that's how things started changing really rapidly. But I mean, on the positive side, you kind of are enacting on his, you know, his will to like do this and create this initiative and help people. So, you know, there, I guess I don't want to say there's a silver lining in it, but you know.
1: Well, there, you know, there, no, but you're right. If you can't change the facts of what happened, but, I hope it's a way to honor him, you know, by creating the kind of social change that he wanted to see and really focused on it, you know, in his last months and and years.
0: Yeah. Well, so thank you so much for being on. Can you just give our listeners a kind of a glance over where they could find you, how they can get involved, maybe share the word with Rumi?
1: Definitely. First and foremost, go to Rumi.org. It's R-U-M-I-E.org on your phone, your desktop, whatever. And just try it out, right? What I do is actually do it on my phone and I just pull out a bookmark and I drop the icon next to my social media apps so that when I open them, I literally do it mindlessly. Then I look and I'm like, oh, you know what? I do have five minutes that I was trying to kill. Why don't I do something productive? And so honestly, it's, it's a bit of a behavioral thing. So I do that, check it out and share it and spread the word. So the, again, the more people use it and join the movement, the vision then is really starting to exponentially grow. And then beyond that, just kind of follow us. We'll share lots of more fun new things that we want to share get out to people. It's either Roomy Learn on social media, or I am so so fancy on social media because <laughs> my last name, my last name's Fancy. Free and that last was gone
0: name.
1: And, <laughs> I know, right? So fa- fa- so fancy was gone, also. So I doubled down, and so so fancy was available, and so <laughs> that's where I can be found.
0: You guys can also find out more about Tariq and his, you know, everything, his social handles, email, stuff like that on corporatequitter.com. And uh, that's it. Thank you so much for being on. This was really great.
1: This is awesome. I really enjoyed being on with you and, and enjoyed the conversation.
0: Yeah, thanks. Thanks for listening to the Corporate Quitter podcast. Make sure to check out corporatequitter.com for extended content and additional information about our guests. To connect with us, stay up to date on all things corporate quitter, and to learn more about how you can leave the 9 to 5, follow our host Gabby on Instagram or TikTok at SheLikesToGab.